So let's look today at sometimes I forget to stay calm. Sometimes I forget that I'm supposed to, as a believer, be calm at all times. We're going to be looking at John chapter 14, if you'd like to turn there. Funny how it never rains in Beijing when American presidents arrive for high-profile visits. And it's no coincidence. Military meteorologists in China seed the clouds and empty them of their moisture in advance. So the weather is tailor-made for the occasion. Using an arsenal of rockets, artillery, and aircraft, Chinese scientists blast the clouds right out of the sky. We, term, we can turn a cloudy day into a dry and sunny one, says the head of the Beijing Weather Bureau. That is nothing to what is already on the drawing board. Weather modification is a rapidly developing technology, spurred on by billion-dollar investments in climate change and global warming. It's the new science, and its ramifications are not lost on military planners. Governments around the world are developing what might be the most underreported arms race on Earth, weather warfare. A University of Ottawa professor in the magazine called The Ecologist warns that the world's weather can now be modified as part of a new generation of sophisticated electromagnetic weapons. Both the U.S. and Russia have developed capabilities to manipulate the climate for military use. Weather manipulation is the preemptive weapon par excellence. It can be directed against enemy countries or friendly nations without their knowledge, used to destabilize economies, ecosystems, and agriculture. It can also trigger havoc in financial and commodity markets. You know, I hear that, and then you add to this the current concern that the COVID variants might be with us forever, and that we will need to just learn to live with COVID and its various mutations as a worldwide disease for many decades to come, that it won't be wiped out like polio and some common childhood diseases have been. Then we hear about the financial stress people are feeling as COVID, for many people, changed the way we do life and make a living. Pondering just these several amazing developments a few weeks ago, I feel like we are either hurtling into the age of science fiction or stepping into the pages of the book of Revelation. That's the last book of the Bible, which indicates that catastrophic disruptions in Earth's meteorological patterns will wreak havoc on the world during the Great Tribulation. And if you listen to all of the storms and the floods and the extra rain that have been happening in the last few weeks, I would suggest that we have seen the weather wreak havoc upon the world. But here's what the Holy Spirit wants us to know. As we wait the Lord's return, the atmospherics of your heart and my heart should be calm. The Bible says that we have a God who calms the storm and a Savior who rebukes the wind and the waves so that they are calm. Psalm 107 verse 29, He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Luke 8 verse 24, Jesus rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. 
And the Bible directs us to keep calm as well. The writer of Psalm 131 said, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Proverbs 17, verse 27, tells us that a person of understanding, and that's us, we have an understanding, we have God's wisdom, a person of understanding has a calm spirit. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 4, the Lord tells us, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. And yet, sometimes, I forget to stay calm. Calm is an interesting word, and it's known more for what it is not than for what it is. Calm is not living in fear, having anxiety, being worried, anxious, agitated, living with turbulence, having panic attacks. Calm does require some kind of a storm, though, or you would never notice it, because it would be calm compared to what? The weather world originally gave us the word in the first place. It means that the wind is moving at one mile per hour or less. The Beaufort scale has calm at one end and hurricane at the other. Extreme opposites. So the Lord said to me a few months ago, take a moment and evaluate your own life. As you attempt to move through these chaotic days when so much is changing and the norm no longer exists, where would the Beaufort scale register the winds of your soul? Calm? Hurricane? Partway in between. And as I ponder these things, and more, you know, like the stress people live under due to the pace of life they have, the number of people addicted to prescription drugs, the serious issue of obesity in children and adults, the epidemic of misinformation spreading worldwide. As I ponder those things, Jesus speaks loudly into this current world in which we find ourselves, and he says, let not your heart be troubled. He would not have said these calming words unless his followers needed them unless they, on the Beaufort scale, were somewhere up 8, 9, or 10 towards hurricane. Their hearts were troubled, and he knows that ours are too at certain times. Some people believe and teach that when you accept Christ, you will receive a get-out-of-stress-free card and live in what I call a Walt Disney Happy Ever After world. To be honest, when I became a believer, I picked up a few new problems I didn't have before I met Jesus. And I realized very quickly that Jesus never promised us that everything would be great or terrific or even wonderful. He did promise and warn us that troubles would follow us and that obedience to him would actually increase our persecution levels. Jesus is also the one who said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's John 16, verse 33. Jesus himself felt pressure and stress. 
He was distressed as he watched Mary weep over the death of her brother Lazarus. It says in John 11, verse 33, that he groaned in the spirit and was troubled when he saw Mary. As he contemplated the cross, he felt genuine anxiety, John chapter 12, verse 27. As he waited for Judas to betray him, he was troubled, John 13, verse 21. And the Bible says he is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, Hebrews 4, verse 15. Because he also was, was tempted and tried as we are. As the death of Jesus nears, his disciples begin to be anxious about their life situation, and Jesus comforts them with these words, and you'll find them in John 14, where I ask you to turn. We're going to start at verse 1 and read to verse 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So sometimes I forget to stay calm or to receive the comfort that Jesus offers. And when that happens, I try, I try to return to these words of Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus did not say those words as he stood beside a Galilean stream on a sunny day without a care in the world. He said them as he stood near the jaws of hell itself. Jesus didn't speak them from the all-protective shelter of his father's arms. He sat with his frightened disciples in the upper room, preparing for the worst of humanity and the silence of heaven. His words were, let not your heart be troubled. And then he gave them some things to believe, some things to hold on to, some things that would bring calm in the midst of the coming storm and all future storms. He asks them in these six verses in John chapter 14 to put their trust in four things. Trust is faith in action. So these are the things we are to believe and then live like we believe them so that we step out in the faith of these four things. Four things that he promised would provide courage. Four things that he promised would renew the strength for our troubled hearts. Four things which can and will continue to do just that for us as well in our troubled and chaotic times. Number one, Jesus asks us to believe in a person. When a child is afraid during the night, who but a parent can provide comfort? The child will cling to mommy or daddy and begin to feel calm. And that's how it is with Jesus. His comfort begins with his very identity, who he is. Let not your heart be troubled, he tells us. You believe in God? Believe also in me. He's God. 
And so, like a heavenly Father, who is God, he comforts us. To have your heart not troubled, not anxious, not worried, not uptight, we need to recognize, we need to believe that Jesus is God and that God has everything in control. I first realized this many years ago when I read in John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. And my thought at that point many years ago was, if the Holy Spirit is another comforter, then Jesus must be the original comforter. And a comforter brings calm when we recognize who he is. Jesus is God. And Jesus, in this verse, John chapter 14, verse 1, asks us to believe that. And believe means that we need to have faith in it, which means we need to act as if we do understand and believe that. It's true. The people of Judea believed in only one God. The center of their faith was expressed in the Shema. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The Jewish followers of Jesus had been trained since infancy to love God exclusively. Love the Lord your God and only the Lord your God. And he wanted them to believe in him. And that was something shocking. He wanted them to believe in him in the exact same way, because he was God's son. Really, he's God in human form. And if the divine nature of Jesus is at times difficult for you and I to understand, you might imagine how the disciples would have struggled to wrap their minds around such an idea. They had always been taught there was one God, and he was their father, and he was the Lord, our God. And now Jesus is saying, if you believe in him, you should believe in me, because I too am God. In fact, it wasn't until after his resurrection that they began to truly process what he was telling them here in our passage. Jesus was asking men who had been schooled in the Hebrew Scriptures to expand their faith in their Heavenly Father to include His Son, their earthly teacher. Not just God the Father, but God the Son. Calling upon His full authority as the Lord of Heaven and Earth, He said, I and the Father are one. John chapter 10, verse 30. So the point Jesus was making is to believe in what I say, you have to believe in who I am. And he is God. So Jesus is asking us to believe in a person. The point I'm making is to live with inner calm and the peace of God that is beyond human understanding. We have to believe in a person, Jesus. Not believe in a doctrine, not believe in a teaching, a creed, a theology. Believe in a person and believe in who he is, God in human flesh, whose words are true and whose words release life in those who receive them. He is God, and he can and he does calm the storms, the nature storms and the inner storms.
Secondly, Jesus asks us to believe in a place. Jesus goes on and tells his disciples, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. That's verse 2. Jesus is going away, and the disciples are shattered, brokenhearted, wondering why he's leaving them and what they're going to do without him. Jesus answers the why question. He's leaving because there's work to do, planning for the reunion that will happen when his disciples and us join him in heaven. He's encouraging his disciples to think of the wonderful future he is planning and building for them in heaven. And so he is asking his followers to believe in a real place. You know, the scriptures include many synonyms for heaven and many decent descriptions of heaven. We know it is vast. We know it is beautiful. We know it is wonderful. We know it's beyond all imagining. In the Bible, it's called a country which is more beautiful than anything here on earth. It is seen in the Bible as a city built and perfected by the architect of the universe. Jesus calls it a kingdom, the realm of a powerful king. Heaven is real. And we need to be careful because Hollywood and the media have in many ways reduced heaven to a stereotype. It has become, become something trivial and unimportant. And yet the idea of heaven and Jesus going before us to prepare a place for us is to give us hope, even in the storms of life. It's supposed to guide us, guide our aspirations and our dreams. It's supposed to soothe and comfort our hearts when we lose a loved one. It's supposed to help us to realize that we're not mundane or insignificant. We are children of the kingdom, bound for heaven. And it is real, and it is home. Jesus' description of heaven is my favorite. He called it my father's house. Many of us who grew up on the King James Version are familiar with the phrase, many mansions. Newer translations substitute something like many rooms or many dwelling places. I think the reason for that is that the word mansions is now associated with the homes of millionaires. But originally, the Greek word meant a simple dwelling place. Jesus is actually saying, in my Father's house are many rooms, but please don't think we will all be tenants of a large boarding house with cramped quarters and a shared bathroom down the hall. Heaven is the infinite, infinite expansion of God's glory. It is perfection. And the idea of a mansion is actually is accurate and appropriate and a decent translation of what Jesus was saying. But most importantly, this place, this mansion, this father's house, this dwelling place, this rooms, is a home. It's God's home. Home is an important concept in the life of a human being, as most of the important aspects of our life takes place in a home. And Jesus is saying that our ultimate dwelling place for all eternity is heaven, where you will have a place of your own, and more importantly, where you will have a place where you can call home. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, God has set eternity in our hearts, and that's heaven, our ultimate home. Folks, a house is not a home. 
any more than a church is a building. A true home is an intangible thing composed of love and relationships and peace. So no matter what your house in heaven looks like, it will be home and precious to us because the presence of the Lord will be there in the home. And we will experience love, healthy relationships, and peace. So, to experience calm and not forget to be calm in the midst of a storm, we need to be doing as Jesus asks of us. And Jesus, in John chapter 14, is asking of us to believe in a person, to believe in him and who he is. He is God. And Jesus asks us to believe in a place, and that place is heaven, and it's our home. Jesus, thirdly, is asking us to believe in a promise. Wonderful aspect of the Bible is, is its many promises made to born-again believers. God, when God makes a promise, it's a promise. It's our rock. It's our guarantee. It's our assurance. And Jesus, in the scriptures we are looking at, comforts us with this promise. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, and where I am, you may be also. John chapter 14, verse 3. So here is his promise, that he'll come again. And when he comes, he will take those of us who are born again believers to himself, and we will be where he is in heaven. Now, some people interpret this as a description of what happens when we die, but the problem is that we have no specific scripture support for the idea of Jesus returning for each believer at death. Luke 16.22 suggests that the angels handle that task. This verse is certainly, though, a description of the triumphant return of Christ, or what we know as the second coming. Our comfort is in looking forward to his second coming, his return, when he will take us away and to be with him, where he will take away all of our problems and heartbreaks that we now have in this life. That's the promise that he asks us to believe in, that Jesus came and died on the cross because he desires to spend eternity with us. That's the promise that he asks us to believe that he will return to take us with him into heaven to spend eternity with us. How much different would our lives be if we could only begin to embrace the truth that the God of heaven desires to spend eternity with us? Listen to Jesus' words when he prayed about that desire. John chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, and that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. We need our Lord's promise as we continue to walk the uncharted roads in front of us, with all of the issues that we're going to be facing, with all of the issues the world is currently facing. And remember, as tough as it may be, the devil may win an occasional battle, but Jesus has already won the war. It's a fact. Jesus has ascended into heaven and is preparing a place, a home for us. It is a fact. Jesus will return 
and take us there for all of eternity. That's a promise. And we are asked by Jesus to believe in that promise. Fact is that that's how much he loves us. And the fact is we need to learn to live life as if this promise is true, because it is. And you know, sometimes I still forget to stay calm. Jesus says, believe in me, believe in the reality of heaven, my home, your home, and believe in my promise that just as I have gone into heaven, I will come again and I will take you with me. For some, believing can be difficult to accept because the problems of this world, problems of our individual lives, are visible, tangible, and right now. But the hope and the power to deal with today's problems that are visible and tangible and right now come from an invisible reality. The only connection we have to that reality is our faith or our decision to believe. And that when we believe, when we walk by faith, we can view our sorrow and our setbacks in a much larger context of eternity. Then we will not forget to stay calm, and we will not forget to live with peace in our hearts. So this is what we're saying here. Jesus asks us to believe in a person, him, that he is God. Jesus asks us to believe in a place, which will be our future home, and that place is heaven. And Jesus asks us to believe in a promise. And the promise is that he will come and get us and take us to that place. Fourth and last, Jesus asks us to believe in a plan. Finally, Jesus has a plan for us to trust. And that plan is revealed in John chapter 14, the verses we're looking at, verses 5 and 6. Thomas, always uncertain, asked Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and if we don't know where you're going, how can we know how to get there? And Jesus answered him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way you get there. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Jesus was leaving, Thomas wanted a map so he could follow. And the GPS, Global Positioning System, was not available back then. So Thomas was asking, can't you even leave a forwarding address? Jesus' answer is surely not what Thomas was expecting to hear. Jesus says that he is the map. He is the map. He is the GPS, Global Positioning Savior. He shows us the way to heaven. He takes us to heaven and ultimately is the journey himself that gets us to heaven. So imagine you're on a business trip and you stop at a convenience store to ask directions. And the cashier gets questions all the time about how to get to a certain place. So he fires the turns at you in rapid succession. Take the first right, third traffic light, dog left, dog leg left, straight at the Methodist Church. Then go through four or five intersections. If you see the Jiffy Burger, you've gone too far. What you want is the second left past the old gas station. All of this was spewed out before you got your pen out to write it down. And now you have a look of despair on your face. So the cashier glances at his watch and says, You know what? I get off in three minutes, and it's on my way home. 
I'll lead you right there myself. And now you're smiling because that cashier has become the way. Not only has not only has the directions, he not only has the directions, but he's the means of getting there, and thus he is your new best friend. William Barclay in his commentary says that this is what Jesus does for us. He does not tell us the way, he is the way, and he will take us there. But Jesus says something else that many people would rather skip over or explain away. Jesus says not only that he will take us to heaven, but that he is the only one who can. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is not saying that he is a way. He is saying that he is the only way. Jesus' words in John chapter 14, verse 6, clearly teach the exclusive one-way nature of salvation. Only Jesus. And that truth is not isolated to that one text, because you don't develop a teaching or a theology or a doctrine on one text. Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. The narrow gate, narrow mind, you be the judge, but Jesus is the narrow way. He is the only way. John 8 Verse 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Acts 4, verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God, and one mediator between God and man. One mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. So the scriptures are remarkably clear on this issue. Jesus is the one and the only way. Jesus is the one and the only truth. Jesus is the one and the only giver of life. If that's narrow-minded, so be it. I'm happy to be narrow-minded. If that is what God is, because this is the, his truth and not mine. What about the number of religions out there? Again, the Bible says, in Proverbs 14, 12, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. And that's the case with the number of other religions. It's not about what seems right that counts. It, it's what, about what is right that counts. The various world religions seem right, and they are neither different versions of the same story nor parallel steps leading skyward on some pyramid of truth where all the differences melt away. Jesus asks us to believe in the plan, his plan, the only plan, and that is that he is the plan. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus asks us to believe in a person, him. He is God. Jesus asks us to believe in a place, heaven, our home. Jesus asks us to believe in a promise that he will return and take us to that place. And Jesus asks us to believe in a plan, that he is the only way. And when we do believe, when we do, then we will seldom and ever 
forget to stay calm. Let me give you just an end note here. Other world religions that I've just mentioned. Today it seems we have decided that to believe Jesus is the only way to the Father, into heaven, and to gain eternal life is no longer politically correct. It is, we are told, by the world, bigoted and intolerant. And according to some recent polls, the majority of North Americans, 70 percent, think that some non-Christian religions also provide paths to salvation. Pollsters at Pew Research Center were amazed to find how many respondents accredited more than one way to heaven. 57% of evangelicals, born-again believers, said they believed many religions can lead to eternal life. In other words, nearly half of evangelicals in North America we're left in the category of believing Jesus is not the exclusive way to heaven. Respondents to an online poll by the evangelical periodical Christianity Today indicated a similar belief pattern. 41% believe there is more than one way to heaven. We need to believe. Jesus asks us to believe in the plan. And the plan is that he is the only way.